This is Dennis Ramondia. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, author of American Veda. Our podcast, Spirit Matters Talk, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our guest today, Sadvi Bhagavati Saraswati. Uh, she started out getting her PhD, then went to an ashram in India. She does a lot of philanthropic work, uh, a lot of uh, nonprofit work. Uh, she is currently the president of the Divine Shakti Foundation, a foundation dedicated to bringing education and empowerment to women and children. Uh, it runs free schools, vocational training programs, and empowerment programs. Uh, Safi, thank you so very much for taking the time to come on uh, and speak with us today. Of course, it's a wonderful joy and honor to be with you. I'm really glad we were able to connect while you were here in the U.S., and um, thanks for coming on. Why don't we begin, Sadvi, um, your story, your personal story would be of interest to people. Um, maybe you can explain how you ended up in Rishikesh and becoming a sannyasin, which for people who don't know the word is a, a renunciate in the, in the traditional uh, Hindu uh, sense of the word. How did this all come to be? Well, actually, Phil, it really was God's grace. I would love to take credit for somehow making it happen, <laughs> but I can't, I can't do that legitimately. I really don't get any, <clears throat> excuse me, get any credit for it at all. I was in India on a trip traveling, taking a semester off of a PhD program I was doing in psychology. And I didn't know anything about India. In fact, going to India had not even been my idea, but I had agreed simply because I was a very strict vegetarian. And I had traveled quite a bit in Europe, uh, both alone with friends, with my parents. I had spent a year in South America. And in all of those places, traveling as a really strict vegetarian <laughs> in places where you didn't speak the language mm -hmm. was very difficult. And so when India was suggested, as embarrassing as it is 20 years later in retrospect to admit, the only reason that I even agreed to go was I thought, well, at least these people know what vegetarian means. <laughs> and you, you don't have to grill waiters and chefs in languages you don't speak. In India, when they say vegetarian, they know. And then you're not going to end up with something with chicken broth or something that's got eggs in it or oyster sauce or anything like that. And then... This was in 1996, in September of 96. And so there wasn't a web at that point. I mean, we had email, but there wasn't Google that you would just go to and type in India, what to see, where to go. But we had this Lonely Planet guidebook, which I opened in Delhi and said, let's go to Rishikesh. Mm. And it was really just like that. It was relatively close to Delhi. It had yoga. I was already a yoga student. Um, had you heard of I, it before? 
I had not heard of Rishikesh, no. But it, I, as I said, I didn't know anything about India. And because I had been in school with course loads and then final exams and stuff, it wasn't like I had spent a lot of time thinking about this trip or researching where to go. So when I opened the guidebook and said Rishikesh, it just, it appealed to me on the rational level because there was this river, there were mountains, I was always a, a nature person, and so that sounded nice. It was yoga, I was a yoga student, but this is why I say it was just grace because a 500-page guidebook and then just, hmm, Rishikesh. So, and of course, in The Lonely Planet, particularly at that time, the specific details of all of the different hotels were not very distinct. I mean, it was always like, okay, you know, single rooms, double rooms, air-conditioned rooms, non-air-conditioned rooms, vegetarian restaurants, this many rupees. And Mm -hmm. when I was looking at the guidebook in Delhi, the hotel that I chose happened to be the only hotel where south of Ramjula, where Parmarth Nikathan, the ashram I live on, where that is, where the other main ashrams are, all of the other hotels were up at Lakshmanjula, the North Bridge, or on the downtown side of Rishikesh. But again, with very little information and just an incredible amount of grace, I chose this one hotel that existed amidst these ashrams. And I remember when we were carrying all of our luggage across Ramjula, because, of course, the driver had not told us, oh, well, let me help you get a coolie. Or he hadn't said, oh, you know, there's a boat you could take. We should, we just, should um, Safi, we should let the listeners know that Ramjula is a footbridge. Yes, so, yes, yes. So you Thank can't you. drive across it. Mm-hmm. No, you can't, and it's ac- it's across the Ganga right. from the downtown side. Right. So all of the public vehicles, trains, buses, taxis, drop you off on the other side. And I remember as we were schlepping our stuff across Ramjula, this this conversation of really there wasn't a hotel in Rishikesh that you could have chosen (laughs) where we could have actually been dropped off at the door of the hotel. Like you had to choose the one hotel in Rishikesh that required us to schlep our stuff across the bridge. But that was how the grace worked. And after dropping the luggage off at the hotel, I said, I'm going to go and put my feet in the river. And that was really just what it was for me at that point. I didn't know Ganga was sacred. I didn't know that she was holy and divine. I just knew I was hot, I was tired, and the idea of sitting on the banks of the river sounded so nice. Mm -hmm. And so I walked down to the river and got to the banks of Ganga and burst into tears. Mm. Something opened from inside of me, from outside in, from inside out, 
on every level that just literally blew me open inside. And I burst into tears. I literally was knocked to the ground. I mean, I had been standing, and next thing I knew, I was sitting and sobbing. But they weren't sad tears, and they weren't even happy tears. They were just tears of the truth, tears of coming home, tears of literally seeing the truth. And that was what had happened to me. Sati, if I could could ask, did you, before going there, had you read anything, had you heard anything from anybody that where you anticipated you might have some type of awakening or spiritual experience, or was it totally innocent and just came out of nowhere for you? It was much more of the latter. I Mm -hmm. was not anticipating, expecting, or even searching for on any conscious level a spiritual experience. And of course, I feel ridiculous about that in retrospect. I mean, I feel like, God, I, I had 25 years in which I didn't even know this existed. How silly of me not to have searched for it. And yet that really was the truth. I was not looking for it simply because I didn't know something like this existed. I didn't even know this was something for which one could search. I was not a reader of spiritual books. I was not particularly religious. I was raised in a Jewish family. I had been at mitzvah, we went to synagogue on the high holidays, we went for my grandparents, and it, it was always much more about the family, about the culture, about the land of Israel, than it ever was about God or a personal spiritual experience. And so I didn't even know there was something for which one might yearn or seek or search. And so it really came out of nowhere. I was expecting just to relax and cool off. And now I have to just digress for a moment and say that in nature, particularly in the mountains, I had always had very, very deep spiritual experiences. Mm -hmm. So as a student at Stanford, I was always driving into the Redwoods, spending as much time as I possibly could, whether afternoons, whether weekends, whether longer, in the Redwood Forest. And it was always a very, very deep, connected spiritual experience for me. So... No, I was not anticipating that something would happen on the banks of Ganga. But for me, heading to the river, heading to the mountains, was always for me a very deep inner spiritual calling. And in fact, whenever we would leave the mountains and leave the forests, I would saw, and my friends, of course, thought I was just completely nuts. I mean, they would say, you know, we'll come back next weekend. It's just not that big a deal. Come on. We're only, you know, we're, we're only driving a few hours. Mm-hmm. But in a way that I had no way of articulating at that time or even understanding right. at that time, 
it really was akin to a baby being rested off the mother's breast or feeling pulled away from God. I felt so close to God in nature. And so, you, you said you were uh, <clears throat> practicing yoga at the time. Can, is it, uh, can we assume that you were doing it for physical fitness and it wasn't part yes. of the conscious spiritual path? Exactly. And you had I never was... heard of the Beatles being in Rishikesh? No. You have to read Phil's book. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was I was seventy one born, and so by by the time I was, you know, a an early teenager and getting into cool music, that had all happened so long previously that it it wasn't part of my generation's thing to follow. So. I yes, I was practicing yoga. I was practicing it for physical health. I was a student. I carried really heavy backpacks and bags and stress and all sorts of baggage, literal and figurative. And I had been introduced to a phenomenal yoga teacher, Manuso Manos, in San Francisco who I traveled from Palo Alto up to see a few times a week. And I adored him. I still do. He's an incredible, incredible teacher. But no, the yoga classes were not classes that directed us toward toward God in any in any specific way. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. it all was about inner union and about finding that place of union. But if you weren't already on a path, it wasn't that you were going to come out of the yoga class feeling like, oh, I've got to go to India and have yeah. a right, spiritual right, awakening. Right. So, so, so no, so I, I wasn't anticipating it. And I didn't even have any framework into which to put the experience that had happened. I had no idea what happened to me and what continued to happen for several weeks, in fact. When I was there, I just was crying. I had tears pouring out of my eyes. I was seeing the divine in everyone, everything. So whatever I looked at, human, animal, inanimate object, nature, I would literally have darshan and just burst into tears at whatever I was looking at. And it was an incredible time. And fortunately, I had enough inner trust to just allow it to happen, even though I didn't understand it. Right. Now, Safi, I wanted to ask you, during that period of time, uh, did you have anybody to share your experience with? Were you interacting with anybody or is it all internal and being kept to yourself? It was all mostly internal. It wasn't something that I was able to speak much about, again, or even articulate. Every time Mm -hmm. I would open my mouth, I would just burst into tears. You know, there's a great story of Paramount Sri Ramakrishna talking about the, the different chakras. And I'm going to paraphrase it, so if I, if I get it a little bit wrong, forgive me, but I love the story. And it's, a, it's a story of how his 
disciples were asking him about the different chakras and he would begin with the lower chakras and he would talk about the experience of being in that chakra and then he would take you up and Mm -hmm. slowly and, and, and then as he would get to the heart chakra he would say and then and then he would just he would just burst into tears and go into his samadhi and then he'd come back and then again he would say okay so we'll start and he would again take them up and after three, four times, he finally looked at them all crying. And he said, I really want to tell you, but the mother, she just won't let me. Mm-hmm. And, and while, of course, for me, it wasn't on that level, but the experience of opening one's mouth and trying to explain what's going on and realizing that nothing comes out except tears was something that was exactly what had happened to me. And so there, there was no way for me to, to articulate it. I just kept saying, I remember God and Ganga and God and Ganga. And I'm sure that I sounded completely crazy. I know my parents thought I was when I spoke to them on the phone. But there was a man I had met at Parmarth Nikaton who used to sit in the temple complex doing seva. He was a man from Maharashtra who just spent a few months every year at Parmarth doing seva. He would hand out the prasad when people would come from the temple. And somehow he and I befriended each other. He spoke very good English. And he used to talk to me about God. And he was really the only one that I could share with because he seemed to really get it and at least not judge it and not roll his eyes and not think I was crazy. But really, at one point, he looked at me and he said, ah, he said, you have had Ganga's darshan. You are very, very blessed. Mm. And so I really felt very comfortable with him and comforted by mm-hmm. his presence and understanding. But other than that, no, I wasn't really able to to articulate it in any way that I could share it with people. But I'm, I'm <laughs> guessing that there was a strong urge to fully understand what had happened to you and, and to stabilize it and make it part of your <clears throat> life. Is that correct? And did that lead you to uh, Parmas and Swami Chidnan Saraswati? Mm-hmm. You know, inter- interestingly, Phil, I had been such a hard core academic for so long in terms of just the academic excellence and the intellectual questions. I was always a front row person in lecture halls and a question asker and, Mm -hmm. you know, it didn't matter if there were 200, 300 people sitting in a lecture hall, you could be sure I would be in the front row and I would be raising my hand and asking questions and that was just who I was academically. And when this happened to me, I seemed to understand from the very beginning Mm. that this was not supposed to be another academic pursuit. Mm -hmm. So even Mm -hmm. though you're absolutely right that my initial instinct was, what is this? And then, of course, when I decided to stay, oh, let me learn everything there is about Hinduism and I should really master this culture. I, 
I didn't let that happen. I was really acutely aware that if what God had wanted me to do was intellectually, academically understand this, I could have done that just as well, perhaps even better in terms mm -hmm. of the number of people who could teach it in English yeah. in San Francisco than in Rishikesh. Right, right. And I, I really just intuitively knew from the beginning, this is not supposed to be me memorizing facts, me putting things into boxes and lists and taxonomy of life so that I can properly explain what has happened, whether to myself or whether to others. And so I really just kept reminding myself over and over again, just let it happen. And what I had was great faith. And so I was able to just melt into what was happening without fear, even though I had no clue what it was. And to ignore the bits of self that were saying, hmm, I wonder what this is about. Hmm, I wonder what you would call mm -hmm. this. Hmm, I wonder, you know. I, I just was able, thankfully, to ignore that. Right. And so what, what brought me to Pooja Swamiji was not any, any sense of trying to understand it but rather that I was walking through Paramarth Nikathan one day, which for me at the time was simply a pathway to get from the hotel to Ganga. <laughs> it was beautiful, it was clean, and it ran parallel to the really dirty alleyway that the people at the hotel had originally sent me down. And when I was walking through it one day, I heard a voice, literally that said, you must stay here. And I turned around to see who had spoken because I was a scientist, not a mystic. I had never heard voices. And so since I had heard one now, it clearly must mean someone had spoken. And I turned around and there was no one. And so I realized, well, if there's no one, it means I couldn't have heard a voice. I must have just imagined it. And I kept walking. And I heard it again about 30 seconds later. And I stopped. And on the airplane to India, I have to go back just quickly. On the airplane to India, I had had a conversation with myself in which I said, this makes no sense. You're in the middle of a PhD program. You are traveling thousands of miles across the world to a place you know nothing about. You have no interest in going to, where the only redeeming factor is that you can get vegetarian food. Mm -hmm. When I was living in the Bay Area, I could get vegetarian food on every corner. I cooked. There was no shortage of vegetarian food in my life. And so to be traveling, taking a semester off of school to do this just made no sense whatsoever. But of course, I hadn't realized that until I was on a plane somewhere, you know, over Southeast Asia. And so I said to myself, all right, if you're going and if you don't 
know why you're going. And if it's as crazy as it sounds, what it means is there must be a reason that you just don't know. Mm-hmm. I always have had a very deep belief in a divine plan, even though I didn't know who the planner was, I knew there was a plan. I never believed that things were just random or coincidental or, you know, anything. I I always believed that there was a plan and that therefore there had to be some sort of a, a planner. And so I said to myself, look, it means there must be a plan. And in order to find out what it is, you have to keep your heart open. And if you cannot keep your heart open, then there's no point in roaming around India aimlessly. You might as well come back Mm -hmm. earlier and at least, okay, you're not registered for the semester, but at least you can get practicum units. You can start preparing for your dissertation. There's a hundred things that you can do to make use of this time rather than just roaming around the country. So when I heard the voice the second time, I was just about to ignore it the second time. And another voice, my voice inside me said, okay, you're just about to ignore this voice for the second time and that's fine. But you need to recognize that what that means is you're not keeping your heart open because you've just heard a voice and you've heard it twice and you can't ignore it. If you don't want to keep your heart open to what that might mean, fine. But then you need to get on the next train, taxi, bus, however you want to go, back to Delhi, and fly back to America because that's the vow you've taken. Mm-hmm. And so as I stood there, I realized I didn't want to go back to Delhi and get on a plane back to California. And so I needed to admit that I had just heard a voice. And I looked up and I saw a sign that said office. And I went in and told them that I wanted to stay. And that was, of course, another long story. Pujaswamiji was out of town. But eventually he came back about a week later. And I was able to meet him. And when I did, he really served as this magic divine glue that brought all of the different pieces of the experience that I'd been having together. And suddenly, even though that's not what I had been looking for, suddenly in his presence, it all made sense Mm -hmm. of where I was supposed to be and why I was supposed to be here and how it was supposed to be. Right. Sadhvi, how did your uh, family, I guess at some point, you must have called back and said, look, my life's taking a new direction now. I, I've discovered something that's very difficult to, to explain. How, how was that reaction and what was that like for you, explaining this to your family and close friends? Well, you know, it's funny because when I had the experience, what I forgot was that I had had the experience and they hadn't had the experience. And so it seemed... We've all had that experience. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It seemed so big and so obvious to me that what I forgot at the time was that 
this experience had happened to me, not to my parents back in LA. And so when I got on the phone with them, I spoke to them as though they also had had the experience. Uh, I think I was pretty incoherent. I remember just kind of talking a lot about God and Ganga and, <laughs> you know, and Swamiji. And it was all so beautiful and amazing. And, oh, my God, oh, my God. And, you know, a week prior to that, I had been talking to them about the Red Fort in Delhi and the difficulty finding a cup of coffee and, you know, the sorts of things that right. tourists call home and, and talk about. And now I was just gushing. And so they absolutely were worried. They absolutely thought that I had been brainwashed, that I had joined a cult, that all sorts of things had happened. But eventually when I, and I think they were probably pretty worried for the whole time that I was in India, although they did finally recognize that I was safe at least. I kept talking to them, you know, at least once a week or so we would talk. So clearly I was safe, but incoherent. And it wasn't until I came back that what they recognized, and again, this is another long story, but Swamiji did send me back as per schedule. And he didn't let me stay on continuously just from then. He wasn't going to let me call back and say, oh, guess what? I'm just not coming home. And he did make me go back. And what that did was it enabled them to see she's still the same. I mean, she's not catatonic. She hasn't been brainwashed. She's not mumbling incoherently. He made me finish the next semester at school, so she's still able to get straight A's. She's still able to be a fully, highly functional member of society. And yet, something very, very critical and very fundamental has shifted and has changed. But that it wasn't something worrisome because in all of their metrics that they could measure things by, I was still fine. I was physically healthy. I was able to intellectually excel. I was able to be efficient and productive. And so clearly I wasn't hypnotized. I wasn't brainwashed in that way. And yet, as my mom said, you know, just being in your presence is so serene. And that was really her way of expressing. And and I got Mm -hmm. it that we recognize something deep has shifted in you and it's really beautiful and we don't understand it, but we recognize it. That's lovely. And And, uh, yeah, it was really beautiful. Yeah. And I'm sure eventually they came to really fully appreciate it. And um, eventually, if we can flash forward a bit, you uh, became a sannyasin and took vows in a traditional way, I assume, and uh, of renunciation, and pretty much live at uh, Parnarth. Yes, I do. I, I took official vows in June of 2000, and I had been you know, 
living as a sannyasi since I had arrived, but I officially officially took the vows four years later. Mm-hmm. And it's been an incredible, incredible blessing. I don't like the word journey so much because it implies that I'm going somewhere, whereas mm-hmm. the the experience actually just feels like I'm being peeled and opened and it's been such an amazing, beautiful blessing. And yes, and I'm at I'm at Parmarth almost almost all of the year except when we're traveling. I and now most people when they think of a sannyasi or uh, a dedicated yogi, especially one who's uh, up in the foothills of the Himalayas like you are, they think of uh, somebody disconnected from the world um, and unworldly. You and Swamiji uh, are incredibly active and have uh, a lot of service projects going on. Can you can you describe some of the work you're doing and and uh, what drew you to that kind of of a path as opposed to uh, one where you spend your time in a cave? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Well, for me, again, remember it was just grace that brought me there and then grace that brought me to Puja Swamiji. I had always been really, really drawn to helping and to service. That was what I had gotten into psychology to begin with for. And I was primarily focused on children. So I was focusing on pediatric uh, neuropsychology and was already volunteering a lot in different children's programs. And so when I met Pooja Swamiji, aside from the immediate palpable spiritual experience, what I found out a little bit later was all of the work that he was involved with and how much of that involved children and women and sick people. Mm-hmm. And so I was immediately drawn to that as well, although, of course, the, the, the real fundamental pull was the spiritual one because mm-hmm. there's innumerable great humanitarian programs all over the world that one could join. But the important aspect here, I think, is that what draws him to it and what he really tries to teach the rest of us is that it's not service of us serving them. It's not service from a place of separateness, of we are blessed with so much and these people have so little and therefore aren't we so great that we are giving of our time, our energy, our resources, but rather that the service should be in its purest and most ideal form, the most natural outcome of spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. That meditation is not real meditation if it doesn't lead you into a place of service because through your meditation, what you experience is such a oneness with all of creation that whether it's starving children, whether it's women dying in childbirth, 
or women having to not go to the bathroom all day long because they don't have toilets and so they have to wait till night, Mm -hmm. whether it's trees being felled, whether it's rivers being polluted and drying up, that all of that is actually self. And so in the same way that we take care of our physical self without even thinking about it, Mm -hmm. I get an itch, I'm going to scratch. If I get a cut, instinctively my other arm will go there and put pressure and hold it. I injure one leg, the other leg is going to pick up the weight and limp. You know, we we do all of this so instinctively because we understand that this entire vehicle, this structure, is all self. And that the service in the world really should come from that place. And for Pooja Swamiji, it does. He doesn't serve as separate. Hence the fact that he can never say no. I mean, in your own body, it's like, first you get an itch on your knee, you'll scratch it. Then you have an itch on your elbow, you'll scratch it. And then, you know, maybe you have to sneeze, so you'll sneeze. And then you cough, and so you'll cough. And there's no moment in which the body says, no, I'm not going to, like, I've already scratched you five times. I've already sneezed or coughed. I'm done for today. As many itches as you have or as many times as you need to cough or as many times as you injure one ankle and the other leg has to limp, you'll keep doing it without ever a sense of I'm done enough because it's self. And so so he just keeps saying yes and we just keep taking on more and more. Sadhvi, if I could ask a question and and, uh, I probably should wrap it up soon and maybe a final question for me. And that is that how important it is for you to maintain this level uh, of selflessness, uh, of, you know, uh, of service, that you have a certain amount of time in your day every day, and I assume this is the case, I don't know, to practice your meditation so that you can maintain that, that level of, uh, of, of broader awareness. Absolutely, Phil. It's really important mm-hmm. because... Otherwise, you end up just like any other humanitarian or philanthropic organization Mm -hmm. where, sure, you may be feeding poor people, you may be building schools, you may be doing all sorts of things that look wonderful. But if within the organization or within yourself, there's ego, there's jealousy, there's attachment, then A, it's no longer a spiritual unfolding, which is really what the ultimate goal is. Mm -hmm. And B, you're not even able to properly and effectively serve because your own ego and your own expectations and your own competition and your own jealousy serve as such hurdles for you that you're not able to effectively be a vessel for the divine will. Then it becomes my will. And things don't move like that very effectively. So whether you're looking to open and awaken and unfold and experience spiritually, or whether you're just looking to be a really pure vessel for God's will and to serve, in either case and in every case, it has to begin with a deep personal practice. Right. Beautiful. So, uh, yes, yeah. absolutely. Right. 
Phil, any final uh, points or questions? Sadly, yeah, uh, uh, in the few minute, uh, minute or two we have left, um, maybe you could um, tell the listeners what the Divine Shakti Foundation is and the Global uh, or the Wash Alliance. Sure. These are two of our foundations, the two that are largest and most active at this point. The Divine Shakti Foundation is a foundation that we founded with an emphasis on women and children, mm-hmm. not, exclu- not exclusively women and children, but an emphasis on them. And so... It includes everything ranging from free co-ed schools to vocational training programs, again, some co-ed, some just women, empowerment programs, upliftment programs. It overlaps a lot with the work also of the Global Interfaith WASH Alliance because WASH, of course, stands for Water, Sanitation, and Hygiene. And a lot of the lack of proper water, sanitation, and hygiene afflicts and impacts women even more so than men. Because men, for example, in most parts of the world, don't mind going to the bathroom you know, in public. Men will turn toward a wall and relieve themselves women tend to have much more of a sense of shyness mm-hmm. or what's in Hindi they say mariada. And so a woman in most cases is not just going to drop her pants or lift, lift up her sari in public and relieve herself. And when, when you don't have sanitary facilities, the women are dehydrated, they're not drinking, they're not eating all day long so that they don't have to use a toilet. And then they're waiting until the dark of night to go out, which, of course, makes them victim to Mm -hmm. wild animals, to men. And so with the Global Interfaith Wash Alliance, we're doing a lot of work on bringing clean water, bringing sanitation, bringing hygiene. And again, as I said, a lot of this overlaps because a lot of it is education programs in schools. A lot of it is provision of facilities for, of course, both men and women, but that I think in many cases impact the women even more deeply than the men. And... Yeah, we're working with UNICEF, we're working with so many other organizations to really do what we can to prevent the... Just in India, for example, we've got about 1,200 children under the age of five who die every day just due to lack of clean water, sanitation, and hygiene. And... Throughout, throughout the world, the number of people perishing from lack of clean water, sanitation, and hygiene mm-hmm. is more than those who die from every form of violence combined. Wow. So, yeah, so take terrorism, take wars, take drug-induced crime, take domestic violence, add it all together, and it still pales in comparison to the number who are perishing just due to lack of wash. Wow. So that's, that's where we're focused right. at this, this moment in time. Well, uh, congratulations on your great work and the great work of your teacher. And we will post up on our podcast all information 
from anybody that's heard this and is inspired to help or get involved in any way, we'll have that information. And uh, I think I felt like uh, uh, Satvi that this was part one of of a series of interviews that we'd like to do with you because uh, you have uh, much much to share, and uh, I think. Uh, your enthusiasm for your spirituality is infectious and uh, is uh, very inspiring to those that listen. So we, we'd like more of you on the show. No problem, Phil. It was wonderful and such a joy and such an honor. And just lastly, to invite you, and you're going to be with us just after that, I know that, but all of your listeners as well to join us uh, in Rishikesh anytime, of course, but especially the upcoming International Yoga Festival from the 1st to the 7th of March. So I know it's close, but for anyone with a little bit of flexibility in their schedules, it's an incredible, incredible annual event that we do, and everybody is welcome. And uh, they can find out by Googling International In, Yoga they Festival. Can, they can go to International Yoga Festival, all one word, dot com. Right. right. And the ashram is Parmarth Niketan Ashram, P-A-R-M-A-R-T-H. Mm-hmm. And that website, yeah, exactly. That website is P-A-R-M-A-R-T-H dot org. And we'll have that all posted up. And uh, you can always, of course, uh, uh, email uh, Phil or me, and we'll get you that information. Uh, thank you so very much, Sati. Phil, thank you. And uh, any final words? No, thank you, Swadvi, for coming on, and uh, we'll see you in India. Thank you so much, and thanks so much to both of you. It was really, really wonderful. Okay.